Well, the last time we were in Colossians, if you have a Bible with you, you can, you can turn to Colossians chapter 3. We'll be beginning in verse 18, Colossians 3.18. If you don't have a Bible, there are black hardback Bibles on the back of the pew in front of you. And the last time we were in Colossians was in February. Uh, Pastor Nick preached from Colossians 3, 12 through 17. And what we've seen from Colossians chapter 3 up until this point, and, from, and really the main idea of Colossians is that the gospel of Jesus Christ not only saves you, but it transforms you and, and, and shapes how you live your whole life because of what Christ has done for you and Christ in you. And so we saw in, in verses 12 through 17 that it affects how we love and serve one another in unity as a church, how we worship God. And so in the verses that we're going to read this morning, we're going to see how the gospel not only affects our relationships with one another in the church, but this morning it's about how the gospel shapes and transforms our relationships in our home, in our families, and in the workplace. So if you're able to, would you please stand for the reading of God's word. Colossians three eighteen through chapter 4, verse 1. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Let's pray. Father, I pray you would be gracious and, and speak through me now, through, through your Holy Spirit. Um, God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the, the truth in your word. God, I pray that the gospel of Jesus Christ would transform us, that it would humble us, that it would cause us to go before you and, and bow our knee to you in prayer and seek to live our whole lives for you, God. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it's been a pretty discouraging weekend so far if you're a basketball fan in Kentucky. First, you have Kentucky losing to number 15, St. Peter's. Then, are there any other Murray State Racer fans in here? I, I may be the only one, so I graduated from Murray State. So I thought, okay, number 15 seed beat UK, got them out of the way. So now it's the Racers' chance to finally, for the first time ever, make it to the Sweet 16. And they failed at doing that last night. So, hopefully this morning will be more encouraging. We can put all that aside, the basketball games, the losses, and look at God's word together. I want to open with a very simple illustration and an easy question. Imagine that you inherited some oceanfront property. And you wanted to build a house there. But you first had to determine the exact location. Where exactly... Am I going to put this house? Where is the foundation going to be? And your only options were 
a strip of sand right along the coast, or a nice big piece of bedrock that was exposed. Which one would you choose between those two? It's a pretty easy, obvious answer, right? You would build your house not on the sand, but on the bedrock. Jesus says in Matthew 7, this is a paraphrase, but he says, the one who hears his words and does them is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. But the one who hears the words of Christ and does not do them is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the storms of life reveal that the rock of Christ's words is the sure foundation that does not fall when the, when the rain and the floods and the winds come and beat, beat against the house. When the house is built upon the rock of God's word, the rock of Jesus Christ, it doesn't fall. And so when you're building in the same way, you, you want to build your house on a sure foundation. And, the, and then also the very first block that you set or the very first brick that you lay is very important because every other one is going to be in alignment with that, right? And so in the same way, the Bible also says in First Peter 2 that Jesus Christ is our cornerstone. And here's the point I'm trying to make is that the gospel of Jesus Christ not only saves us, but it transforms and reshapes our entire life and all of our relationships in our life. And, and the, the word of God must be our sure foundation. It's the only way we can have strong families, strong homes, and strong relationships in our life. And that Christ must be our cornerstone, meaning that everything in our life must be in alignment to him. And so what I'm doing this morning... It's not sharing, or any, or any time we preach, it's not sharing my opinion or our opinions about how your family should operate, but simply preaching the word of God and looking at what does God's word say. And this is how we're to build our life. This is how we're to live based on what God says, not how we think or how we feel. So this brings us to point one. The gospel shapes relationships in the family. And you'll see... Verses 18 through 21 in this passage are all about relationships in the family. So there's actually five commands just in these first four verses. There's five commands. Number one is wives submit to your husbands. Number two is husbands love your wives. Number three is also to husbands do not be harsh with them. Number four is children obey your parents. And number five is fathers do not provoke your children so that they become Discouraged. And I'm going to focus a lot of our time this morning on the first three commands, the one that, deal with, that deals with wives and husbands. Because of the, the, the nature of that, how much it needs to be explained. So we're going to dive into that first. So the first command of the passage there in verse 18, it says, Wives, submit to your husbands. So over the past week or two or so, as I've talked to some people about catching up what's going on in our lives right now and I tell people hey I'm, I'm going to be preaching uh, next week or this weekend and they say oh you know what are you preaching on what what passage what's it about and I say oh, Colossians 3 you know the one that starts out wives submit to your husbands and uh, they always give the same look like oh have fun with that one you know good luck with that and I, I think the I think the reason that a lot of our initial reactions to passages like this one is that is maybe to maybe our natural inclination is to avoid it it seems too hard to explain 
or we be, because we, we think it might sound too archaic in the culture that we live in today. But I believe that these passages about wives and husbands are actually beautiful passages. When understood li- rightly, they bring joy and peace and, and flourishing to families and they glorify God when we understand these rightly. So number one, I want us to see that it makes the point that it says wives submit to your husbands. In Ephesians 5.22, it says there, wives submit to your own husbands. So I want to make it clear that, that this command is not a general command saying women submit to men. That's not what the Bible is saying. It, it, it's a command. It's not generally for all women to submit to all men, but this is only within the context of the marriage relationship. And I, I believe that biblical submission is simply this, that God's design for the family is for the man, the husband, and the father to be the head or the leader of the family. And that the wife is to gladly follow his servant leadership. And so this is something called complementarianism. It's, it's something that we believe this means that man and woman were created equally in the image of God and are completely equal before God. But God created them to have different and distinct roles that complement one another. Or in other words, it means that their differences fit one another perfectly to promote a healthy relationship and a healthy family when in their proper roles. And it's important to make it very clear that that male headship in the home for the father or the husband is not at all based on male superiority. It's simply based on God's design and his created order that was revealed to us in the word. And so I want to quickly just look at a biblical theology of marriage uh, within the framework of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. This is the, the overarching narrative of scripture follows follows those four things. So Genesis one twenty seven, we see that man and woman were created equally in the image of God. It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. If you've seen the news lately, maybe this weekend, uh, there's a headline that maybe has grabbed a lot of your attention. It's uh, William Thomas, who now goes by Leah Thomas, won the women's national swimming competition. And if you've seen the picture, if you've seen the picture that's, that's usually with this headline, you, you'll see this really tall, really big, really strong individual on the left side of the podium with a gold medal around his neck, standing with the first, standing on first place, and then two smaller framed females standing at second and third place. And I think for most people, the obvious reaction to that is that this is not right. That, that this person on the left, who was born a male and is now competing against females, has an obvious physical advantage, is just simply stronger, has a bigger frame. And that's why he's winning. And so the point I'm trying to make here is that men and women are created completely equal, but God created men and women to be 
different. We're not just the exact same. He created us to be different. And then within that, and then within the context of marriage, we have different roles that God has called us to. In Genesis 2.18, it says, The Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Fit for him, which means they're not the same, but they fit together perfectly in the way that God designed them. But then everything went wrong in Genesis chapter 3, the fall, due to sin, when, when man rebelled against God. In Genesis 3.16, part of the curse there as a result of sin uh, God says to the woman, I will greatly multiply, multiply your pain in childbirth. and pain you shall deliver children. Yet your desire, listen to this, it says your desire will be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And this is the exact same language used in Genesis 4-7 when God says to Cain, sin is crouching at your door and its desire is for you. And it seems to suggest this language of its desire is to control you. So the point is is that in Genesis 3:16 it's not describing the marriage between man and woman as it should be as it should be, but as it now is as a result of sin and the fall and that there's now going to be this unhealthy tension or power struggle within the marriage. And that's what naturally results among fallen people is this power struggle within the marriage. But then we have the redemption that Christ offers, and that's a passage we, we just read earlier this morning. Uh, Ephesians five twenty two through 33 really lays out how Christ redeems marriage and the, the roles for women and for men in marriage and for marriage to be a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ and for the, how the man is called to be like Christ and to lay down his life for his wife and for his family, to, to practice servant Leadership, and we'll talk more about that in a second. And then we see that the restoration of marriage, when Jesus comes back, what this is all really pointing to in Revelation 19, we have the marriage supper of the Lamb at the second coming of Christ, when the church, when all believers in Jesus Christ are finally completely united with Him at the end of time, and we have this feast of of Christ, and, and the church is described as the bride of Christ, and will be with Him forever. So, I want to say to women, if Colossians 3.18 or if Ephesians 5.22 has ever been used against you in this way, by a man to coerce you to do something or to make you a lower status or to make you subservient. A man's just saying simply, the Bible says you must submit to me. I want to say clear that that is not the spirit of this passage. It is not saying that a wife should be subservient to her husband and that the husband should lord over her. It's simply saying that she should gladly follow his servant leadership. And men, if you have ever used these verses to rule over and abuse those under you that God has graciously given you to lead and to care for, then you need to repent of that sin. So the second command here is husbands, love your wives. Verse 19, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So husbands, love your wives. And and Ephesians 5.25 mirrors, says the same thing that we read earlier. And how does Ephesians 5.25 say this should be done? And by the way, I think if you were to click 
Imagine if Colossians 3, 18 and 19 and your Bible were like a hyperlink, you know, a blue underline hyperlink. Imagine if you were to click that. I think what it would pull up is Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, where this is the fullness of the explanation of God's design for marriage. So how does Ephesians 5, 25 say this should be done? It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So how did Christ love us? He died for us. He suffered and was crucified on the cross so that we could be forgiven of our sins. So I want to make it clear this morning that I believe the emphasis of this passage and, and really the, the pressure of this passage primarily is put on the man. It's put on the man to step up and take responsibility and love his wife like Christ. And by stepping up, I mean, man, by, we must humble ourselves before the throne of Jesus Christ and get on our knees and pray that God would make us more like Christ and fill us with the Holy Spirit to empower us for this responsibility. How did Christ love us? He, he came to this earth. He humbled himself even to the point of death. He washed our feet. He suffered and bled and died on the cross. So again, this is servant leadership. The husband is called to put his wife first, to look to her needs and desires before his own, to die to himself daily, to die to his own wishes and desires and put her first, to work hard and make sure that she and his family is provided for physically and spiritually and emotionally, to live in such a way, husbands, and lead the family in such a way that your wife is holier and spiritually and, emo and emotionally healthier and happier because of your leadership in the home. And it's a very, very high calling that men must take responsibility and strive to live up to by the power of the Holy Spirit in us. And men tend to fail at this in two ways. One is to be a tyrant in the home and to use their authority to abuse those under their leadership, whether that's physical or verbal or emotional abuse. And there's so many of us, so many people, maybe some of us in this room, who've lived under that and who still, maybe even today, suffer the effects of living under an abusive head of the house. And that's not God's, that's not the heart of the Father that's revealed in Scripture. So that's one way that men tend to fail. The second way that men tend to fail is not to be a tyrant in the home, but it is to be passive and just altogether not accept the responsibility that they do have to lead their family, to just be absent husbands and fathers. Maybe, maybe just be a nice guy, but to be absent, to not take responsibility to lead. And so this is like most issues in life and, and many issues in the Bible where it's like trying to stay on the, the straight and narrow road and there's two ditches on either side. And that's how most, not most, but that's how a lot of wrecks happen, especially on two-lane two roads, is that someone starts to veer off the shoulder and into one ditch and they overcorrect and maybe go into the other lane and, and hit someone head on or go off into the other ditch and hit a tree. And so 
the natural tendency is to, is to overcorrect if you feel you or the culture slipping into either more passive or to more authoritarian. And we need, we need to keep our eyes fixed on what the scripture says, not what the culture says, and seek to live our lives according to it. So the fourth command here in this passage is children obey your parents. This is actually the fifth commandment within the Ten Commandments, which says, Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord is giving you. So children, kids in the room, I want to say to you, this is one, this is one very simple way you can honor the Lord right now in your life, is simply to obey your parents, to listen to them when they're, when they're talking and to, to obey them. Uh, and then number five, the fifth command in this passage is, is, fathers do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. I noticed a couple of the commands here to the men in this passage is don't be harsh. Don't provoke your children and discourage them. It, it, it's almost as if it's the expectation of scripture that, that a lot of men are just in a bad mood for whatever reason. And they get home and they're irritable. And they're frustrated. And they're angry. And they don't have much patience. And so what do they do when they get in the door? They take, them, they take that out. All the problems that they have in the world. They take that out on those closest to them, unfortunately. So there's a temptation to be harsh with your wives. And to speak with this very short tone to them. And there's a temptation to just always be on your children for every little thing they do. And, and to discourage them. I think it's because men, let's say you work all day and as, soon as, as fast as you make the money, the money's going out. You're paying the taxes. You're, your washing machine breaks. Whatever, it breaks in the home and you just see all your money disappear and you have problems at work and you have a, someone lording over you at work and you're just frustrated. But we're called to not be harsh with our wives, to not provoke our children to anger and discourage them. For men to not use their authority or the physical advantage that they have to intimidate those under them, to be harsh with those under them and just, just have this tyrant-type mentality in the home where they, they coerce people into obedience instead of having true, loving, caring, shepherding, servant leadership. So men, don't create the type of home environment where as soon as you get home, People start walking on eggshells around you. Again, this does not reflect the heart of God our Father. So, the gospel of Jesus Christ not only shapes and transforms our relationships in the home, but we're going to see in the next few verses that it also transforms the relationships in the workplace. Verses 22 through 25, so if you look ahead in the text of 22 through 25, it's describing the relationships you can see between masters and bond servants. And I don't have time this morning to really unpack everything about what this looked like in first century culture between masters and bond, and bond servants. But I do want to clearly say that the Bible does not condone slavery. It doesn't promote slavery. And that this system in the first century culture... Didn't, doesn't operate in the terms that we ter typically think of transatlantic, transatlantic race-based slavery. It's a completely different system based on debts. But the point is that for us, 
None of us are, are bond servants in this room in that way. So the way that this really applies to us is to look at this and understand this more in terms of relationships between employers and employees, between supervisors or business owners and those under them. Which leads me to point two in your outline is that the gospel shapes relationships in the workplace. So in the same way, so earlier I went through creation, fall, redemption, restoration, and how marriage was originally God's good design and that it was affected by the fall, but Christ can redeem it. In the same way, I want us to see that work was originally a good part of God's design and that the fall affected it, but Christ can redeem it. So listen to Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So this is before Genesis 3, before the fall. Work is a part of God's good, perfect creation. So work is not something that we should see as evil or bad or that we should avoid. It's part of God's creation. But in Genesis 3, 17 through 19, after the sin and after the fall, God said to Adam, Because you listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall bring up, it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to the dust you shall now return. So work is still a part of our life. But it's not as easy as it was how God originally intended it. Now it says, By the sweat of your brow you shall work, and thorns and thistles spring up, and you have to work through that. So for some of you, maybe for some of the farmers in the room, you deal with this literally. You literally deal with weeds. You literally deal with thorns and thistles that are just a pain in your life, especially it's spring coming into summer, and for the next six months or so, you're going to constantly be dealing with fence rows that are grown up. But for a lot of us, for a lot of us who, who aren't farmers, uh, we have to deal with modern day thorns and thistles, things like printer jams and the Wi-Fi going down. And if that happens, it's like you can't do anything if the Wi-Fi is down. Everything just comes to a standstill. Or maybe upset customers. Whatever it is in your modern day workplace, the point is that the reason it's so frustrating is because of sin and because of the curse that came as a result of our sin. But here, here's the point. Here in Colossians 3, it gives us the answer in Christ of how work can be redeemed. Again, it says, whatever you do, work heartily. Work hard. Do your very best. And, and, and it says, work for the Lord and not for men. Not being a people pleaser, but doing it for Christ. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive their inheritance. So this passage gives clear, it gives very clear principles for supervisors and for employees. Okay, so number one, we should work hard. Everyone should work hard. And by working hard at your job, it says this actually brings glory to God. Christians should develop such a reputation for being reliable hard workers in the workplace, that companies, employers should want to hire Christians. Christians should work in such a way that 
that it's just known if I hire a Christian, we're going to do better because they work hard. They're not lazy. They don't shirk their responsibilities as soon as I'm not looking. And it also gives clear instructions and and 4-1 for for business owners or for managers or for supervisors or if you're in any place of authority in your work, how you are to treat those under you. It says to treat them justly and fairly, remembering that you have a master in heaven. So don't ask a worker or a servant to do something that you're not yourself willing to do. God didn't do that. He gave us a standard, and, we, and when we failed to keep it, he came to us and lived, the, lived it out perfectly with no sin. And don't use your authority to be a tyrant over someone else. We're, you're to care for those under you. And so it's, it's glorifying to God as a leader in the workplace or as a manager or a supervisor when you treat your employees justly and fairly and care for them. And number two, this isn't explicit in the text, but I would say we're called to be missionaries in the workplace. You have relationships and an opportunity in the workplace to share the gospel with people that that no one else in this room may know or have a relationship with. You may spend 40 to 50, 50 hours of your week, every single week, at this place around these people, and that's a significant amount of time that you can use to live like Christ. And, and to share the word of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And these two actually go hand in hand to work hard and to be a missionary in the workplace. Because when you work hard and you have credibility and respect of your coworkers, they may be more willing to listen to you when you open your mouth and share the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. So you may be someone who is under authority all the time in the workplace or, or in the home even. Or you may be someone who is in authority and has people under you. But the scripture is clear that these two types of people actually have something in common together. And, and what we all have in common is that we're all under the authority of the King Jesus Christ. Look at Colossians 4.1 again. It says, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So that leads us to the third and final point here, is that the gospel establishes the ultimate authority of Christ. In Matthew 28, the Great Commission, Jesus said, this is after Jesus rose from the dead, and he meets his disciples in the Galilee. And he says, All authority in heaven, in heaven and on earth has been given to me been given to Christ. So Jesus has all authority. So in any organization, from the person mopping the floors to the CEO or the president, they're all under the authority of Jesus Christ. And if, if, and if anyone has any authority in life over anyone else, it's simply because God has graciously given it to you, not because of you deserve it. Listen to John 19, 10 through 11. This is when Jesus was being questioned before Pilate. And Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. And it's funny, Pilate, as soon as he heard that, it says that 
after that, he sought to release Jesus. I think that put the fear of God in him in a way and, and humbled him in a way. I'm not say, saying Pilate was saved, but he realized that he was under authority as well. And so again, this applies to everyone in this room. You would have no authority in life if God had not given it to you. And so God has the authority to save you from your sins and declare you righteous in Christ if you believe in him, if you trust in him. And he also has the authority to condemn you to hell if you never repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Only God has that ultimate authority over your eternal soul. So I want to end by just asking you some questions. Reflect on these questions and how you live in your own life. Have you submitted yourself to the, to the ultimate authority of Jesus Christ? Have you personally bowed the knee to him? Is Jesus Christ your personal Lord and Savior? Have you humbled yourself before him? Confess that you're a sinner and that he is Lord and that he is perfect and that you need him to save you. Husbands, are you taking responsibility in leading your family? Are you using your leadership to love and care for your wife and those under you? Are you a servant leader like Christ? Wives, are you gladly following your husband's leadership in the family and encouraging him? Children, are you honoring your parents by listening to them and obeying them? And for everyone, are you, are you honoring the Lord at your job by working hard even when no one is looking? Are you treating those under you fairly and, and justly? Are you, are you seeking to share Christ with your coworkers and, and be a witness in the workplace? And I want to say clearly the reality is, is that none of us have done all of these things perfectly. We've all failed in these in some way. The Bible is very clear in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Jesus said himself that the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And so without Christ, that's all of us. Without Christ, we're hopelessly lost and we're sinners. And so Jesus came and he died. He lived a perfect life and he died and, and suffered on the cross. And, and his death was a payment for our sins so that in all these ways that you failed as a husband or as a father or as a wife or as someone under authority in all these ways that you failed Jesus's death can pay for your sins if you if you repent and believe and trust in him let's pray father I pray that you would Take this word that we've heard, Lord, that it wouldn't simply just be something that we've heard with our ears. But God, I pray that you would plant your word deep in our hearts and that the, the, the seed of the word and of the gospel would bear fruit, that it would transform us. Lord, I pray for, for husbands in the room, God, for men to, to take responsibility and lead their homes like Christ, Lord. To, and, and Lord, that you would empower us to this calling. Lord, I pray for healthy families. Lord, I pray, God, that we would be missionaries and evangelists in the workplace and that we would glorify you in everything that we do. And Lord, I pray that we would not try to do this in our own strength, but that you would empower us through the Holy Spirit to, to do this daily in our lives. God, we love you so much and we thank you for loving us first. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Well, I'll be standing down front um, for prayer. If you want to respond by making a profession of faith, if you're not a Christian, you say, today's the day I want to give my life to Christ. I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to talk to you about that. If you want to join our church uh, through baptism or through, membership, through becoming a member of our church, I'd love to talk to you about that. But we can all stand together now and respond to God by worshiping one more time.